I'm Holly, your resident farm girl turned ambitious dreamer, food insecurity advocate and Miss America competitor, flipping the story of who you are and who you can become, talking to normal people, people who have inspired me, people who have faced their fears, and ultimately people who have taken an opportunity and made something of it. From former pageant queens to food insecurity experts, farmers, and educators, my hope is to show you what is possible, regardless of where you come from. Places shape you, but they don't define you. Let's chat about locale and make the world a little more local. Welcome to the podcast. I wanted to bring a very special sister of mine on the podcast. Today we have Tracy Kennedy, who is a Missouri girl, and we're really excited to have her. She's someone who has become very special to me through our sorority. So Tracy, can you tell us more about the community that you come from? Thanks so much for having me as an avid podcast consumer. I'm super excited to for you, Holly, and, and talk about a place that I love so much, the great state of Missouri. I grew up in uh, Maryville, Missouri, which is northwest corner of the state. Um, you're an hour from Nebraska, an hour and a half-ish from Kansas City, 20-ish miles from the Iowa border, which is where I live now. Was born and raised in Maryville. My parents ended up there. My dad came to Maryville because his father was a college professor at Northwest Missouri State University. So a lot of our life centered on the college campus. In fact, there's an elementary school on campus. So that's where I went to elementary school. So going to college was never seemed like a big thing to me because I felt like I'd already gone to college. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, the community's activities really center around Northwest, which is a really amazing way to grow up. And then my parents are both in the healthcare field. My dad is a family physician um, and my mom's a registered nurse. And growing up, it looked a little bit different. There weren't as many providers. So my dad did everything. He delivered babies. He did minor procedures. Our phone number was in the phone book. So people would just show up at our door because they needed stitches or they wanted him to um, you know, look at something. And I always dreaded going to the grocery store or to like Walmart because everyone would stop my parents to ask about their medical issues. But it was just a really unique way to grow up. And more than anything, it just gave me such a strong sense of community that no matter where I live, that will always just be so important to me. And what I love about small towns, and I I would call Maryville small-ish. There are 10,000 people and 7,000 students. So in Northwest Missouri, it was really quite the metropolis. So Um, But what I love about smallish towns is that people just see a problem or they see somebody that needs help and they just do it. They don't wait to be asked. They don't expect recognition. They just do what it takes to, to get it done. And I love that mentality. And I think it's really served me well, um, as I've gone on to, to other places. So I am pretty proud to be from Maryville and and it's made me really who I am. What do you think is one thing that people don't know about Maryville? Or I know some people who consider Maryville a big town compared to a small town. What is something unique about Maryville? 
Huh, that's a great question. There are a lot of unique things I would say about Maryville. There is a state registered arboretum on the college campus. And that makes me think, I think what people might not know or appreciate is it's really a beautiful place. There's lots of trees. There's amazing, you know, beautiful fields and um, great sunsets. So it sounds a little corny and I'm not sure I appreciated it when I, when I was growing up, but now when I drive in and I see the sign that says entering Nottoway County, I just see, I see this landscape really shift and change. And, um, you know, it's not hilly like mid-Missouri, but there's these really pretty rolling hills. And so if you haven't been before, I highly recommend that you visit it because it's it's just really naturally a really pretty place so and so you might not know this but my first local competition for miss missouri ever was actually miss nottaway county and it at the time it was miss pony express jesse james and saint joseph and they gave three or four titles that weekend and i didn't win any of them but it was so fun. Um, so I also have a special place in my heart for Maryville just because that's where this whole journey for me started. I love it. I love it. And that's why we are kindred spirits. I competed in one and only pageant in my whole life in the Miss Nottaway County pageant. What? <laughs> I think I think I was, but I was little. It was like little Miss Nottaway County. So I was like in kindergarten and I did not place. And I was so distraught that my, my <laughs> mom just said no more. So I guess Nottaway County really insists on humbling, on humbling <laughs> people, but I'm glad you've gone on to be more successful and you don't hold that against us in Nottaway County. No, it was the, it was the best first experience I could have had. Um, something that you touched on that I wasn't planning on taking this conversation to, but I found really interesting was about rural health care and yes. something that I've seen and you see food insecurity change depending on someone's zip code. And you see that similarly with health care or health services. What was it like being in a home so healthcare driven in a mm -hmm. rural, smaller community, seeing people come to your house unexpectedly, wanting those medical services? Yeah. So I, it's an interesting question you asked because when I, um, I grew up my entire life wanting to be a doctor and I wanted to be a doctor just like my dad. And um, I felt really passionate about healthcare in my hometown. In fact, my dad had gone to the Air Force. He went to Mizzou and, and went to medical school and then he went to the Air Force. Um, but he came back to Maryville because it was really important for him to practice and to provide that service in his hometown. And um, so I, I went to Mizzou with the intent of becoming a family physician like my dad. Um, but unfortunately, when I started college in 2005, um, we were starting to see some of the crumbling infrastructure, the impact to healthcare, especially in rural areas. And really, the field of family medicine was changing and evolving. And we saw more specialized care. That's why, where you see the rise of specialties. So family doctors don't usually deliver babies anymore, for example. Now it's an OBGYN. And so 
we also kind of saw the crisis for rural hospitals, which is where both of my parents worked. And, you know, I think one, some people conjure an image of a hospital and it's, you know, where you go if there's an emergency or if somebody needs a, a procedure and operation, it's a kind of this serious place, but in a small town, it's a center of community activity. It's one of the largest employers. It's, they drive community initiatives, they host events. Um, and so it's so much more, uh, than just a hospital. And so um, I changed my major because I wanted to be able to somehow help maintain that that important voice and status of care for rural Missourians. Because I knew for some people, it wasn't reasonable to drive 30 minutes to St. Joe to go to the doctor. And if they had to, that probably meant they just weren't going to seek preventative care, um, which is a major problem. Or we know that people get the best results from cancer care if they don't have to drive a far distance from home. So I ended up studying political science and getting a master's in public policy because of my interest in healthcare policy, because um, that community-based medicine, knowing that your your physician is also your neighbor, or you go to church together, or you always you see them at the Friday night football game, um, that was just the model I grew up with. And you know, I didn't. Um, I grew to really love that. I felt like it was really a, a family impact. And what what I really learned from my parents was how healthcare is such an important equalizer. It wasn't just as if my parents only took calls or patients from certain people in the community. They knew everyone in the community, whether the person was a farmer and couldn't pay their bill or the person was an attorney and had been practicing for years. Um, everybody in our house was just a sick person that needed care. So, you know, it's interesting earlier when you asked me, you know, something about Maryville people don't know. And I think people have a tendency to think that people in small towns are really closed minded, but when you're forced to be in the same places all the time, it's really hard to sometimes have a narrow mind and to shut people out because there's only so many places to go. You're eventually going to run into those people again. So I think sometimes people, people don't see that aspect that in a small town, you're kind of all in it together and it's a little bit of an equalizer. So you know, just to kind of wrap up to where I started, I am still incredibly concerned about what's happening in terms of rural health care, in terms of disparities um, and access to food and food security, and the lack of opportunity for some people in in small towns. So, Right. And I agree with that, too, coming from Eldon, Missouri. So less than half the size of Maryville. And so you touched on how you were interested initially in wanting to be a doctor in healthcare and then moved into political science and public policy. And the work that you've done that I know of are still very public health driven. So could you tell our audience what what you're doing now, what you're passionate about, in how you're advocating for healthcare in other ways. So I've spent most of my career working in uh, advocacy. So I work to advocate for smoke-free workplaces, uh, first in Missouri and now in 13 Midwest states. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been a really interesting way to show or to 
witness, I guess, what disparity looks like. So for many people, secondhand smoke is just not even on their mind because they don't smoke in their home. No one in their family smokes and they go to a workplace where nobody smokes and they kind of have taken it for granted. So we have really deepening disparities, especially in the state of Missouri, where people are exposed to secondhand smoke. Um, So for example, in the boot heel and in Southeast Missouri, there's not a single smoke-free policy. So you can smoke in restaurants, you can smoke in bars, you can smoke in membership clubs like VFW, where people gather for bingo, or it's a lot of times a community center where people might be going for a funeral service or even a wedding reception. Actually, the majority of communities in Missouri where people may still be exposed to secondhand smoke every day at work. And so what we see is as places like Kansas City, for example, go move further along and they're smoke free. And now they've, you know, they were one of the first to raise the age of purchase of tobacco products to 21. And, you know, they kind of get further along the divide just deepens and other people just continue to kind of suffer every day. I've really dedicated my life to to this improving the lives of workers and employees. It's just the disparity that really makes me crazy. And the fact that um, it's still the leading, smoking is still the leading cause of preventable death. So the outcomes are really important. And I, I, I got started because my mom wanted to work on making Maryville smoke-free. And when I was a high school student in 2003, I testified at my first city council meeting asking them to make restaurants smoke-free in Missouri because a lot of high school students worked at local have restaurants. Have you ever felt too small to make an impact or have you ever felt like, have you imposed your own barriers on yourself because because of who you are, where you come from, in your ability to make an impact on this global problem? Totally. I mean, totally. I have lost way more than I have won, which is really painful for my competitive spirit. And so it's been a struggle for me personally, because I see this issue as nonpartisan. Um, I want to see this change for communities. But I've had a I've had a lot of coalitions and groups I've been working with now for 10 years who have seen little to no progress. So I've just tried to find a way to make sure we see incremental changes and reaching incremental goals and kind of sh- I'm constantly evolving and shifting what success looks like and um for other leadership nerds Lathetas that may be listening, I'm a big strengths quest person. Mm-hmm. And so my strengths are positivity, uh, achiever, command, competition. And I'm trying to think what my fifth one is. It is woo, which is winning others over. So I really do rely on these strengths that even though I have this really innate need to achieve and to win that I know that there's value in building relationships and strong partnerships that those will help to pay pave the way for eventual success and that you know it's about really remaining positive and and really still feeling like it's possible is essential for me to keep going every day one of my strengths quests is also competition. Um, oh, yeah. And that might be a thing of all thetas, I feel like. It could but, be. It could um, be. That's definitely one of my 
whenever I like took the test and got the results back, that was definitely one where I was like, ouch, but I was like, that's very true for me. So going on competition for a second, how do you in your life, in the workplace, balance your innate desire for competition and being competitive while also building a community? Yeah, that's a great question because I I have competition and I have command. So command, the strength is kind of related to when you are in a group of people or when you're in a situation, you kind of assume an authoritative position and take command, if you will, of the room and kind of take charge. And so I have really worked on this a lot. Um, I This year, uh, my husband and I will celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. And I do have to credit my husband. He has very um, different strengths. And he has really helped me to kind of hone and temper my competition and command, especially in a way to try not to make every interaction feel transactional. What's most eye-opening is there's another great assessment that's free, and it's called 16personalities.com, one six. And so it's based on Myers-Briggs, and it spits out like a little cartoon character of your personality type. And mine was a, a was a tiny dictator. She was like a <laughs> tiny dictator. And I thought, okay, um, I think I need to, I don't love that. I didn't love that thing that about <laughs> myself. And so I've just been really working to make sure the people I'm surrounded by and that I'm working with know that um, everything's not a transaction and that I am interested in them as a person and I, I care about them and their work as a human. Something that I know that you focused on both in college and now is the value of having strong mentors. Could you talk about, especially to graduating seniors, college students, how you identified a mentor and what steps you took to be a good mentee? I'm going to try not to make this one of those annoying answers where it's like, it depends. (laughs) Um, But I actually found it really intimidating and kind of awkward when I, the, the thought of asking someone to be a mentor and it's the, actually even like the term networking used to really stress me out and stresses me out still. It stresses me out. So when I was, um, I was a collegiate member of the Griffiths Leadership Society, which is all about, um, mentorship and networking. I would just sit there and feel really overwhelmed by the whole thought of it. And what I see now is that it's really just formalized words, which I kind of sometimes try not to use to talk about finding common ground with women who are your peers. They might be in your class or in your field or in your major. They may be are 10 years ahead of you. There may be 20 years ahead of you, but it's really just about finding that common ground and then continuing to follow up. You know, yeah, I really feel that I've connected with this person. And then I would just send them an email and just say, you know, it was really great to connect with you. I hope we cross paths again soon. And there's something about putting that out there that then usually lends to that. And then that mentor would invite me to something. And maybe it was social or maybe it was professional. And our paths would cross again. And then you send the other message. You send them a happy birthday note. And 
So it's really nothing more than relationship development. Sometimes I feel like we get really hung up on these terms like networking and mentorship, which just seem really structured and formal. And I never have asked someone to say, would you be my mentor? I really respect and admire what you do, but I would... I really try to surround myself and seek opportunities to be around women I admire doing great work and women who inspire me. And that is both collegian women, women um, that are that are friends and are really my classmates, and then women who have gone before me and kind of blazed a trail. And so I just made a conscious decision that I really wanted strong female mentors in my life and tried to really seek opportunities where I'd get to see them more often. (laughs) Um, So whether, and I always just say, you know, just take advantage of the opportunities, especially if you're in college. I think there's a lot more opportunities like that that are free (laughs) when you get out of college, you have to pay for them. Like even joining like a women's chamber or um, there's so, there's so many groups. So we could, we could have a whole other episode just about groups you could join. But I just say, you know, put yourself, put yourself out there. So one women's group that we both share besides Griffiths Leadership Society is Kappa Alpha Theta. And you were our keynote speaker for our 150th Founders Day this past weekend. And Theta, I know, is an important part of your college career, but also now, Mm -hmm. what did you learn most from your time as an active member and how have you translated that into your adult life? You know, what's so interesting is that we kind of joked when we were in the house about Theta for life. We would just, it was, we didn't have hashtags, but if we did, that like would have been our hashtags. We were always (laughs) joking about Theta for life. And for me, when I was in college, Theta was, um, really a major source of of social fun for me. Um, and I would say I wasn't very serious about sorority life. So now as an as an adult, I see how the processes in Greek life are extremely well serving and well suited for professional life. But when I was experiencing them, I didn't really think about it. Just even simple things like, you know, being on the pancake breakfast committee and going out and asking businesses for donations and leading the committee and all of those kind of expectations that come with being in a sorority are really important in professional life. But I just wasn't really cognizant of them. Um, But I will say the most important thing that I, I feel I learned um, from Theta. So, so kind of growing up and a little bit in college, I always had a big group of guy friends and I thought, Oh, I just really connect better with guys. There's, I had a brother, there's, you know, I have a brother, we're really close. There's just not as much drama. And I mean, I have girlfriends, but I really just consider myself like really close to my guy friends. And I learned through Theta the importance of female friendship and really having true friends. There is no way I could make it through any day without my female friendships. I I have come to rely on them so much that sometimes, don't tell my husband, I'm sorry, Mark, but I think (laughs) they are more important than my, my husband and my marriage. I mean, obviously that's a really important and key component in my life, especially now that we're parents, but becoming a mom, you know, a new challenging chapter in my career, all of that feels possible because I'm supported by these strong women who I met through Theta. 
So something from your time within Theta that I know became a part, uh, more part of your life as you became an adult was the Court Appointed Special Advocates Organization. Would you be yeah. able to tell everyone what is so important about CASA and what your role was within that yeah, organization? So that was another thing I kind of took for granted when I was in Theta. I remember, you know, on Philanthropy Day, we kind of learned this speech and some talking points about CASA. And and so then when I, I had just graduated from Mizzou and I just started studying nonprofit management, public policy at the Truman School at Mizzou. And the local Heart of Missouri CASA board was looking for a board member who was also a Theta alum to kind of serve as a connection between the two. And so that's when I truly learned about CASA and completely fell in love with the organization. I just cannot believe how dedicated the volunteers are and um, how much of a difference. I mean, that's kind of the slogan, right? That CASA is what makes the difference in the life of a child. But you would get to know all of the partners in the court system. So you have a judge and you have attorneys, you have caseworkers and you have families. And all of those different um, stakeholders coming to the table were saying that a CASA can really make a difference. And the judge was saying, I need more CASAs because I have really complicated cases and a CASA is the only person that's there exclusively and only for the child to be a voice for the child. Everybody else is coming to the table with a different interest. And I really value that opinion. And the vast majority of the time, the judge was siding in favor of what the CASA was reporting. And so, you know, if you've been to Columbia, you think that it seems fairly affluent and, you know, people seem to do pretty well, but, um, you know, we certainly weren't untouched by the opioid epidemic and um, just poverty in general and growing disparities. And um, we just had more kids in care than we knew what to do with. So it was really a dire situation. And when I started on the board, um, you know, CASA was was a kind of a fledgling failing organization. Our, off- our literal office space was in the basement, a donated space in the basement of a courthouse building. And we had one uh, volunteer um, executive director and one um, VISTA volunteer, which is kind of like the domestic Peace Corps. And so over my six-year time on the board, we grew to have a budget of more than $400,000. We had six full-time paid staff. We had a new office space. And so um, watching CASA grow uh, and help being able to help as a leader and as a Theta was a really remarkable experience. I'm actually our advertising merchandise and sponsorship committee head for our upcoming philanthropy events. And I agree with you that whenever you are able through your sorority to take a direct part in making the event a success, it definitely hits closer to home and being able to see what CASA does and how to advocate for it in a better way. So it's not just those same talking (laughs) points that every person uses. Yes. yes. Um, Going off of your time in college, I have one final question about that experience. So if you could go back and tell your 21-year-old self as you were graduating anything different, if you could go back and change anything, what would it be? Yeah, there there are many things, and I promise you it really does go by in the blink. And so um, the first thing I would say is what you hear all the time, but really 
cherish your time and while you're while you're in college and cherish that time when you're in your 20s and you're just trying to figure things out and um, I talked a little bit about my strengths and sometimes I would just in my early 20s I would find myself so focused on exactly what I needed to do. I felt like I needed to have precision in each decision I made to be able to achieve certain goals that I had. So I had certain salary goals and I had places I wanted to live, things I wanted to achieve by certain ages. Um, And I just put such an inordinate amount of pressure on myself when it's also just a really fun time in your life where um, you have responsibilities, but you may have fewer responsibilities. Um, You know, you may or may not have a partner. You may or may not have children. You may or may not even have a pet. And so it's it's a time to take risks. It's a time just to learn who you are, learn what you like to do, what kinds of things you like to do, and what you're good at and really honing those strengths and then going going for the things you think you want to do. So um, I just wish I had worried a little bit less about all of it because when you look pat when you look back, you think, oh yeah, my path really makes sense. You know, this led to that, this led to that. But when you're standing on the other side of it, it just feels overwhelming. There are so many options, there's so many things happening. The world's moving really quickly and you almost feel left behind. But, you know, just take things one day at a time and and enjoy the time of figuring things out. You don't always have to know the answer. You don't always have to know what comes next. And sometimes it's your little detours from your plan that um, are really memorable and where you where you learn so much. So you know, I think being focused and being committed and and wanting to achieve are all really important. But um, knowing the women I do, the women that are involved with Theta and the leaders that I know, just give yourself a little bit of a break. Just breathe a little bit. Give yourself a break. Um, You know, read some books, travel, see the world, do those things and, and emphasize that you really have the rest of your life to really figure things out. So just spend some time on you. There's just really no other time in your life where you have have the time to spend on yourself. So you are in Iowa right now, and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started. What is it like preparing for the caucuses and people being in Iowa that normally aren't there? Yeah, you know, it's hilarious. Last night I was out to dinner and there were a table of 10 journalists from the New York Times at this little restaurant in Iowa. And so it's unprecedented access to journalists that I have always admired. Um, So I went to go buy a t-shirt the other day and Ed O'Keefe, the CBS political correspondent was also buying a t-shirt. So it's a little (laughs) bit, it's a little bit like political celebrity bingo or something because you, you have unprecedented access to anybody and everybody. So it's a really exciting time to be in Iowa. And, you know, the, a lot of the values in Iowa are really similar to Missouri. Um, Agriculture is really important here and really respecting the hearts and minds of rural voters. I mean, that's really the lifeblood of Iowa. So while a lot of activity is centered on Des Moines, it's really about what's happening out state. Um, and I think people here, you know, wouldn't consider themselves part of the 1%. There are very few one percenters here in Iowa. So most of us are just, you know, hardworking Midwesterners that are just trying to make, make things work day to day and 
we care less about the politics and we care more about the solutions and making our communities better. So like I met Elizabeth Warren on the sidewalk. She was eating a corn dog. And so I just feel like when you get to see, it's like seeing presidential candidates out in the wild, if you will. You know, right. It's just, they're just out being people being themselves. And it's such a cool, it's such a cool experience. I cannot wait for the caucus on Monday. It's just when you are reminded of what democracy really looks like and how fortunate we are to live in this place where you we have a participative democracy, where you can go to a caucus and raise your hand for a candidate and vote in elections. It just, it really makes you proud that this is the country we live in and that we have these opportunities. And I, I hope that people don't take that for granted. Yeah, I also hope people don't take that for granted. I made eye contact with John McCain once when I was um, at the Capitol, like walking around. And I remember feeling so cool because at that time he was also a presidential candidate. Um, yeah. It was, it was a really cool experience. So I can only imagine what it's like being in Iowa right now. And with that, my last question, we're going to do like a lightning round. I'm just going to ask you some questions. Okay. You'll answer with like a word or a short response. We'll just fire away on those. So the first favorite food. Sushi. Role model. Ooh, role model? That's such a hard question. <laughs> how about, how about, um, do, um, oh, we'll do Ellen DeGeneres. She's having a really good week. I'm going to do Ellen right now. Perfect. We love a good Ellen. I know. More kindness. Um, favorite nonprofit or cause? Well, we got to stick with Heart of Missouri Casa. I think it's it or, or Casa. So just just buy, learn more about Casa. It's the best. Your favorite place to travel? Hawaii. Favorite quote? My favorite quote, kind of going back to what I would tell myself, always do whatever you can and that will always be enough. Word for 2020? Vision. It's so hilarious. I love the puns, but it's so true. It feels like yeah. a very visionary, feels like a visionary year. Favorite college class? Uh, my favorite po- college class was taught by uh, Marvin Overby, and it was called Politics of the American South, and I loved it. Interesting. Most mm. used app? My most used app is probably Slack or Facebook. I do lots of grassroots organizing on Facebook. So I both love and hate it. (laughs) Um, And then the last question is your favorite hidden or unknown resource that you would want to share with the podcast listeners. Favorite hidden or unknown resource. Hmm, That's a great question. I guess so. I'm a big um, news consumer. It's not really hidden, but um, there's a platform called Elvest, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. And it's all about um, women taking power of their financial situation and investments. And I think that's really an essential part of being a good leader and um, having success in your professional career. So I highly recommend subscribing to Elvest. Thank you, Tracy, for joining us today. It was good to get to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. If you have someone that you think should be featured, visit me at Holly Enowski MAO on Facebook or at Ms. Gateway St. Louis on Instagram or shoot me an email. Thanks. Thanks.